Hello, I'm Edwina Johnson, Director of Byron Writers' Festival. You're listening to the podcast Good Muslim Kids, featuring Yasmin Abdel-Majid and Osama Sami in conversation with Joanne Shoebridge, recorded live at the 2016 Byron Writers' Festival. For more information about the festival, please visit byronwritersfestival.com. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Joanne Shoebridge. I'm from the ABC North Coast Broadcast Team. Lovely to have you all here. Great to see uh, such a great attendance to this session. What does growing up a good Muslim kid mean? Well, one of my guests knows a lot about that. The other was flogged as a 12-year-old for trying to spy on girls as they left their all-girls school. Oh, yes, man. Did you do that? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Couldn't help myself. But sitting before you are two extraordinary Australians. Yasmin Abdel-Majid was born in Sudan and, to Australia's very great luck, migrated here with her family as a six-year-old. She's the founder and chair of Youth Without Borders, the 2015 Young Queenslander of the Year. She's a mechanical engineer, a motorsports and boxing nut and football, and uh, a self-proclaimed nerd who loves nothing better than debating international relations. Her biography is called Yasmin's Story. Who do you think I am? And Osama Sami was Just born... Just one thing with the football. Is it AFL or what no, kind no, no, of football? No. The real It's got to be the real... A... Yes. What? No, AFL. That, no, we, that's uh-uh. the debate okay. today. It's going to be... We're going to be talking about I footy. see how it's going to be. <laughs> <laughs> the codes. The and war a, of codes. Osama Sami was born in Iran to Iraqi parents <laughs> during, during the Iran-Iraq war. And uh, he's an actor author, playwright and poet and has been recognised by the Commonwealth of Australia as a notable Muslim. Have you figured out why yet, Osama? (laughs) Yeah, I've paid some lawyers uh, to investigate how that could have happened. Um, Yeah, it's funny when you have a name like Osama um, and you barrack for a team called the Bombers. We'll let the irony sit for those at the back. Uh, <laughs> it'll land. Um, the struggle is so, real. So they'll, uh, that does happen. That ten, tends to uh, raise a couple of eyebrows and they go, yep, uh, notable. Uh, what kind of notable? We'll wait and see. <laughs> Osama has won awards and nominations in each of those professions that uh, he's engaged in. His biography is called Good Muslim Boy and won a New South Wales Premier's Award this year. So uh, please welcome them both. Thank you. Now, Asama, I want to ask you about your childhood. I mean, it's quite extraordinary. You know, an Iraqi family living in Iran on, in a border town. And, of course, most Iraqis are Sunni and most uh, Iranians are Shia. You're, you're Shia? Yeah, that's right. And, and that was the, I think, the hardest thing growing up during, during the Iran-Iraq war is that I was an Iraqi uh, living, I was born in Iran. And my father had escaped the uh, Saddam Hussein's regime. In fact, he escaped the electric chair uh, on, onto the Iranian border. My mum was Kurdish, and uh, so she was deported uh, before uh, Chemical Ali gassed the, the Kurds uh, in, in the 80s. And uh, so uh, what was really odd growing up was that my father was Iraqi fighting against the Iraqis, and so he had brothers on the other side. And, uh, and, and I'd ask my mum, mum, what would happen if my dad and his uncle ever came face to face? It's unfathomable. Mm. And uh, her answer always was, uh, 
shut up, you son of a shit. <laughs> Which, if you think about son of a shit, that makes her the shit. Dot, dot, dot. So, um, and so it was a peculiar... It's an Arabic saying, we're always... And, and, and you know, two-legged goat and two-legged mule and two-legged camel, they're in that order, the, the favourite. And, and so... Um, so she just didn't, didn't want to say uh, why. And, mm. uh, and um, so, so growing up, that was the, the peculiar, peculiar thing for me as a, as a child. And, and all I could see was, uh, you'll all remember Saddam Hussein's uh, men and himself as well had the thick moustache. And the Iranians and the Ayatollah, they all had the beards. So for me, I'd ask my mom, who are the good ones, the beards or the mustaches? <laughs> because to me, that was, it was a war of the beards and the mustaches, and I couldn't work out who was better. And, and I'd often look at my uncle's photograph and my dad's portrait and, and try to put fake mustaches and see which, <laughs> which one makes me look better if I grew up. <laughs> and um, so when Movember came around in Australia, I took that and uh, didn't pay off. <laughs> Who were the Monkarat and how did you come to their attention? The, so the Monkarat are religious police in Iran. They're the piety police and uh, they're literally translates to against vice. And uh, so as, as young kids, as you mentioned earlier, uh, in Iran it's, it's very difficult to... And Iran does rhyme with fun, but uh, it's not always <laughs> the case. <laughs> um, it's... Uh, we, there were... We would try to talk to girls, basically, and um, as just teenagers growing up, but it's illegal. So we had to invent new schemes to be able to talk to them without the cops finding out. Uh, for example, uh, there'd be uh, phone booths, right? And, uh, the, and they're all, everything's segregated there, um, which is why it's so weird seeing men and women. How dare you in a Muslim session sitting all together? Um, <laughs> Because this is a session where Yasmin and I will convert you to Islam after this. You do realize <laughs> that Allahu Akbar <laughs> chant is going to go. It's going to replace the Aussie, Aussie, Aussie chant. You've all of this eaten session. halal meat, right? It's all downhill from here. <laughs> and, um, and so uh, there's the, the female uh, section, uh, uh, the, the phone booth, and there's the men. So what uh, my cousins and I used to do is go and put a, an out-of-order sign on the female one and then, and then we'd go and dial a number on the, uh, on the male section, which would be our home number. Uh, now, because Dad was in the war and only men pick up the phone when the phone rings and I was the man of the house at 13, it meant I'd be the only one picking up the phone, not Mum, which was great because I'd stand uh, in line and, and the women would go to uh, make a phone call and it's out of order. So they go to the men's one and I'd just go, Psst, hit redial, my number's on it. And um, <laughs> it didn't work. As much as I wanted it to. And um, no one, and they hit redial. I'm like, well, we don't care about your number. And they got on with their, and so, we, yeah, we tr just tried to, come up with different uh, schemes. And the Monkarat were undercover police uh, basically out there to give us a flogging. But what... Uh, so they were all uh, dressed as thugs. Like, they... So they blended really well. They, they wouldn't have beards, for example. 
Yeah, thugs don't have beards. <laughs> That's the <laughs> conclusion. Um, but in Iran, that meant, you know, you, were, you weren't pious and um, they'd have neck chains and, and they did everything. And, um, but we sometimes pick them out because, for example, when they'd spit on the gutter to, to look hard, uh, if there was a slogan by the Ayatollah, they wouldn't spit towards it, for example. So, <laughs> so we knew that they're avoiding blasphemy, so they're undercover. Um, and, and one day there was, a, there was a, uh, this thug here and he was standing there. I'm like, is he a Monkarat? Is he a, an officer? Because I wanted to do one of my girl telephone schemes and I had my out of order sign. And uh, I looked over and, and then I saw him. He was like, you know, he just took in some uh, phlegm and just spat on the wall where there was an Ayatollah slogan right on the wall. I'm like, oh, thank God, he's, he's pretty cool. And I walked up to him and I just started uh, talking to him about um, uh, we were fascinated by the idea of alcohol uh, because it's banned in, in Iran and, of course, in Islam. We don't drink alcohol. But we were just fascinated because of what it did. You know, people would tell us, uh, like we had a teacher who said, my wife looks very pretty when I drink the alcohol. Um, that's how I keep up. Um, uh, so we're like, oh, wow. And uh, another guy had it and he said, it makes you look like Rambo and feel like Rambo. Particularly my wife thinks so when she has it with me. Um, and uh, so I started talking to him about that. And then I, something clicked that this guy is an undercover cop. And everything, he had a leather jacket, the, the whole shebang going, the shave, the shaved beard, the, the spitting on the wall. But he was wearing business socks Oi. with his uh, sports shoes. And I'm like, there ain't no way a thug's going to be in those, you know, black business socks. So uh, I immediately withdrew. I said, oh, what? I'm going to report you to the cops if you talk about alcohol again. I don't care how good your wife looks. And, uh, and, and, I, and, and, off went. And, and off we went. But it was, it was one way to deal with, uh, you know, when you're uh, oppressed, you just come up, you just come up with, uh, with ways. And we've got a, uh, another thing in, in Islam. This is probably not true in the Sunni world. Uh, it's called temporary marriage. Um, now, not true in the Sunni world. No, that's right. <laughs> uh, basically, it's a, horny, it's a loophole for horny Arab men to, to, ha to be able to have sex without being punished in the hereafter. So it's, it's, it's kind of a loophole, uh, which I no longer believe in. <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, but, so, but you, there is a dowry, there is a, you know, there's a lot of respect paid, you know, to the, to the woman, and, and you, you pay your dowry, you, 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 but you set a time limit, and it can go from, for some men, it's two minutes, <laughs> like myself, um, and, uh, and then it can go for two decades. But, uh, but normally it's two hours. That's the, that's the norm. And so, uh, so we'd rock up to the, uh, to the, where else but the holy shrine, the big grand mosque where no one would suspect that's where you're going to go looking for temporary marriage. So we'd go to the courtyard of the holy shrine. All the women would be covered and they'd have full-on hijab, the, the black covering, and you couldn't see their face. And, and there was a sea of women in black. And uh, I'd just go up to a woman and yank at her hijab. Miss, miss, excuse me, miss, would you like some temporary marriage? 
and she'd say, go away, I'm 68 years old. And, <laughs> and just reveal her face from under the... Um, and then, of course, when it did happen, there was a 24-year-old and, uh, and she said to me, what if I said yes? And I just froze and I just ran away. I'm like, no, this is not for me. Couldn't handle yeah. the pressure. No. <laughs> Even two minutes, I can't do that. Yes, and uh, your, your family emigrated to Australia when you were six. You went to an all-Muslim school in Brisbane. How did your life change when 9-11 happened? You were 10 at the time, weren't you? Yes, yeah. So I'm just going to take a moment to recover from the concept <laughs> of temporary marriage. Um, <laughs> um, so my family, yeah, we moved to Australia. And when we moved to Brisbane, um, Brisbane was a, a big country town, really. I think my, my dad reckons we were the second Sudanese family in Australia, uh, in Brisbane. Um, and we were definitely, like, the novelty on the street. Like, people I th people generally didn't know where Sudan was. Um, and And... I guess it was fun because, you know, I was just like a fat African baby that cruised around and, like, made friends with random people in South Bank. Um, and so we were non-threatening, right? We were an exotic kind of creature in the neighbourhood as opposed to the face of all evil, uh, which is essentially what happened after 9-11. So I woke up um, and I remember my mum saying to me, because I, I went to a normal Muslim primary school, I remember her saying to me as she was leaving to work, she was like, oh, if anyone throws... Like, if anyone throws rocks at you today or does something to the bus or something happens at school, let me know. I'm like, why would that happen, right? Like, I hadn't... I'd gone to sleep early the night before. And she was like, oh, didn't you, didn't you read the news? And I, I remember, I, like, getting the paper, and it was the Courier Mail, which was a broadsheet at the time, um, and, and seeing the picture of the, the Twin Towers on the front page and being... And kind of not quite realising what a difference that would make to my life. Um, because we, I, we went to school that day and everyone was kind of like, oh, did you hear about this thing? And a couple of days later, I remember my best, best friend at the time, her name was Hafsa, a Pakistani. She was like, oh, they reckon this guy Osama did it. And I was like... I didn't do it. <laughs> I swear I did not and do I, it. And I, like, I remember thinking, why would, like, why would Osama do that? Like, why would a Muslim person do something like that? And then slowly, slowly, you know, I, I, my biggest outrage at the time was that all kids' cartoons were replaced by the news, right? Like when the, there was a tragedy like that. And I was like, like sacrilege, right? I want to watch Hey Alfred or whatever. Um, but it, we sort of, my parents were both really active members of the community. And so, you know, instead of going to soccer on the weekends, we started going to peace vigils and Muslim community liaison meetings. And then all of a sudden, people that were just were, were regular friends were all of a sudden asking me questions about Islam and, and people would look at me and I decided a couple of months later to wear the hijab because, because I had felt like I was a woman by that point and I decided, well, you know, what women do is wear hijab because that's what my mother did and that's what a, a Muslim woman does. Um, and not really associating, associating it at all with September 11, but all of a sudden I was somebody who walked down the street who wasn't a child for everybody else, but was the depiction of something that they were very afraid of. Um, and and I, I remember going to vacation care and having the, the sort of the, the childcare workers being like, so does your father, like, oppress your mum? Or does he... Like, you know, things like this that you wouldn't ask, like, does he beat her? Or is she allowed to speak for herself? 
I'm like, my mum drummed me off this morning. Like, you, you saw her, you met her, but not quite understanding where all this comes from, right? Because you're a 10-year-old whose world has just shifted and you're only just catching up. And I guess I, you know, I was really fortunate in that my parents saw it as an opportunity rather than as I think a lot of other people in the community um, saw it and ended up becoming victims. And I think this is something that tends to happen a lot is, you know, the media, as it were, played a big role in how Muslims were represented. Um, and, and a lot of people were like, well, it's all the media's fault and so on, and our mosque got burnt down and people, you know, um, came and harassed the school numerous times and, you know, there'd be stories about us in the paper and, and it would never be quite what we meant. Um, and so there was this big uh, push in the community about, oh, the media's against us, this and this and this. Whereas my mother in particular was always like, well, it's an opportunity for us to be on the front foot and we have the responsibility because we can communicate and articulate and know that there is a different story to tell. And so I was really lucky that I had that in my life because I think that attitude completely changed the way that I interacted with people who essentially were afraid. And do you think that's why... Well, you, you began honing your advocacy skills then, didn't you? you, know, you <laughs> Pretty much, as a 10-year-old, yeah, yeah. I mean, I definitely went through some angry phases. So I joined, like, the Socialist Alliance when I was about 13. And I, <laughs> I remember... Um, so I had no idea about, like, the tenets of socialism or Karl Marx or anything like that. But um, And I also joined something called Fair Go for Palestine. And, you know, all my friends at the time were really sort of we'd go out and we'd protest and and I had no idea quite what we were protesting about because I was a child but um I was like okay we're angry about something and the people are against us and so and and I ended up going to a Christian ecumenical high school right and um I think it was about the time of the Israel-Lebanon war I was sort of at the front of the the protest and at, like on the news there was like me and I was like I wore the hijab quite traditionally at the time. So there was this like young, brown, angry, like Muslim woman, just like a Muslim girl yelling at the camera. I'm like, they must free us. <laughs> and my principal, so this was on the, on the local news, right? Um, and I'm like, that is so cool. <laughs> the parents of the kids at school were like, who is this person that you have in your school? And in fact, a couple of people uh, complained to my school principal because I went to a pretty white bread, nice private high school, right? We didn't have trouble and there were definitely no like angry Muslim children walking around. And so they essentially they complained to the principal and were like, look, if you've got kids like this at your school, we're gonna pull our kids out. Um, but my principal actually said to those parents, well, Yasmin's one of our top students and what she does in her own time is nothing to do with what I, you know, with the school. And, you know, it's, she's not doing anything illegal. So if you have a problem with that, you should take your kids out of the school, which is incredible. It's incredible. And I think, like, thinking back on it, it's a moment, like, when I talk about sponsorship and leadership, it's when somebody who literally has no skill, like, there is no reason he needed to do that for me. Absolutely no reason at all. But it was about principle. And it was about being a decent human being and saying, here is a young person who's trying to figure something out, who's trying to stand up for something she feels passionate about and is doing it in a legal way. And yes, it's different and maybe uncomfortable for me, but I believe in that and I believe in protecting that. And so I, I'm really grateful. And I've, I think my story, I talk a lot about the kind of people in, in my path that have enabled me to be able to have the space to speak and to have the space 
a, a platform essentially to share a view that is quite uncomfortable for a lot of people. Like I, you know, there are a lot of people that yell about issues they care about, but they don't often get legitimacy in a platform to do it. And it's up to the people with the platforms to give a bit of a hand to others. Mm. Osama is the son of a, a cleric. Did you ever feel the pressure to follow in his footsteps? From either, perhaps not even from him necessarily, but from the community? Were there great expectations on you? Uh, definitely. And uh, uh, coming when I came to Australia, it was... We had to stick together uh, because first we didn't speak English, so uh, we just knew each other's uh, language. And uh, also there's all the stuff about co the, the cultural elements, the cultural shocks that come, that come with it. For instance, we've got this thing called uh, ta'arof in, in our culture, which is when I offer you something uh, you have to decline it, and then I offer it to you again. You decline a second time, and then you accept it on the third go, which is great. <laughs> um, so uh, that concept is, is always there. It's, it's that being over too polite. And so I was at a friend's house. This is a couple of months in, <laughs> and I just made a friend. Uh, and I went in, and we played uh, some Sega for a couple of hours and, and, and sort of talked but mainly in gesticulations and, and really trying to communicate with each other just being boys and then I got really thirsty but of course I'm the polite Muslim boy so I couldn't ask for, for some water I thought come on when they're going to be hospitable they should just offer some water anyway three hours in the mum comes in and goes uh, Osama you want some water and I went uh, no thank you <laughs> <laughs> Boop, off she went Hey, I'm parched. <laughs> um, and then I, I just didn't know. She went, all right. And off she went. <laughs> and, uh, and so I, then an hour went past and I was really thirsty. And I just want some water. Back she came. She's like, I've made you some sandwiches. Would you like some sandwiches? I'm like, no, no thanks. <laughs> <laughs> and she went, oh, all right, Richard, here you go. Here's some sandwich for you. Here's some water for you. Um, just let me know when you want some water, okay? I'm like, yeah, okay. <laughs> Thinking she's going to, like, say it again. Would you please want some? I went home. I was my cotton <laughs> mouth dry. And I just went home straight under, opened the tap and just, just got three litres of water. But, um, but, but that's, uh, it happens. But it also happens the other way. I, I went to Iran recently. And after spending 15 years in Australia, I kind of, forgotten about that uh, so I got in uh, in the cab in Tehran and uh, drove to Qom, my home city which is a couple of hundred k's out and so we're on a two-hour taxi journey we we get there and the taxi driver says I said to him how much and he's like no it's okay <laughs> and I thought um, oh that's right this is the uh, yeah this is the three thing of course this is the water deal I said, no, no, mate, uh, seriously, how much? And then he went, uh, no, you're my guest. You've come from overseas, please. And I thought, oh, wow, he's really keen. And I'm like, but are you sure? He's like, yeah, of course. So I got my bag and I went, he's like, hey, you son of a bitch, pay me my money. <laughs> Where the hell are you going? And I completely forgot. But, but so that means that communities at the heart of of everything and um yeah i had to live in my father's footsteps and bless his soul he was the wisest man the the best role model any 
human any son could ask for and uh, not only a philosopher and a storyteller but a very wise man and and a, and a religious a cleric so he uh, paved the way for a lot of the misunderstandings that we had uh, particularly post September 11 how he got all the kids and and um, together to to uh, help us face that uh, radicalization that some of us were feeling like you say you just start feeling angry and he was helping us with that but uh, I could never be him and there was the the expectation that I become a doctor and with us uh, Arabs, you're either a doctor or a taxi driver. There's no middle ground. Uh, so I was either a cabbie or a lawyer slash doctor slash architect. And uh, I didn't get enough marks uh, at school to become a doctor. Um, but I rocked up to the mosque where there, it was like this, but it was a thousand people. And everyone went, oh, here comes the lion. Here comes, because Osama means lion in, in, in Arabic. And someone else yelled, uh, yelled, he's a wolf, he's a tiger, he's the man. And one guy said, looking at him is worship. And I'm like, oh, no, they're expecting me to get a good score. Um, and everybody's sharing their mark. And some guy got 89, and he's doing engineering. And, every, and they said, oh, we, one guy said, I bet you. If, if the prophet had not banned gambling, I'd put my entire house that Osama's done better than everyone else. I'm like, no pressure. Um, uh, thanks, mate. Um, so come on, enlighten us, Osama. What did you get? Come on. And everybody, and I, there's a cacophony of noises. And I just went, I got 97.5. Uh, and everyone, the guy went, I would have won a house. I would have won a house. I would have won a house. And uh, they're hugging me and I'm at the epicenter of all this attention. People are taking photos and everything. And, and then my dad comes and oh, I just, and he's like, oh my God. And he was so happy and proud and, and everybody was. <laughs> and my mom, she was like, she's already made 12 phone calls to Iraq and Iran. <laughs> my son is a doctor, she would say. And tell me, oh, do I hear you have a headache? He can diagnose you. And, and, um, and, uh, and then, and, and so I had this to... This is all your own doing. I know. <laughs> uh, and uh, and uh, I had to go with it. Uh, so... Uh, we're not talking for a few hours. We're talking for months. And for months, months and, in fact, a whole year. Yeah. Um, where, uh, yeah, the, the, there was a rival cleric. <laughs> it sounds very movie-like, but it's true. Uh, we're not all the same. <laughs> and uh, his son kept at me. He said, I'm going to figure out how, how, how. And so I started rocking up to Melbourne Uni and um, sitting in lectures. Um, <laughs> going into the library, doing reading. I had a plan. I had a plan to... Um, um, I was going to uh, do a science degree, then sit the GAMSAT, then 12 years down the track, eventually get into medicine with, good, with a good score, but, you know, with hopefully no one the wiser for those 12 years that I was doing that. Um, so I met him once outside Melbourne Uni. He was like, oh, I just want to know how. How did you get here? I said, I caught the 96 tram. That's, uh, <laughs> that's how I got here. And, um, and so for a whole year, I kept, I kept doing that. And in the meantime, because I was this 
now I would be a provider for the family. I was following my dad's footsteps. I was going to be this great surgeon. They're like, well, and here's a photo of a woman you're going to marry. And I was arranged to be uh, married because I was now a man. And I'm like, if only you knew the real <laughs> story. Um, this, so this, is a, this is a really terrific story. But if you go much further, you're going to give away too. No, 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 no. Ending. But that's that, but that's, there's another part of uh, yeah, your book yeah, that yeah. I really wanted to raise in this forum, yeah. uh, because a, a lot of the book centres around a trip, a father-son bonding trip mm. that you took back to Iran. Yeah. And uh, you know, it was it, it was an ex meant to be an extraordinary time. It was extraordinary for a whole lot of other reasons. Yeah. Can you tell us what happened? Um, it was yeah. It, 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 three years ago, I went back. So. All my uh, misdemeanors and mishaps got me in trouble within the community. And being an actor, it's, uh, it's really difficult. Being a Muslim as well, the roles that I can take uh, on board. And uh, so, naturally, I play all the terrorist roles uh, on Jack Irish and everything else. But also, uh, 10 years ago, I played the fiancé of a Muslim lesbian, a Lebanese lesbian. She was a Lesbanese. Um, and, um, and that was pretty outrageous for the community that I was condoning because, you know, homosexuality is a massive taboo in, in any religion. And uh, a few years later, I played in a, a role in a film called Saved with Claudia Carvan, and she was a married woman uh, who falls in love with an Iranian asylum seeker and falls in love with him, and there, there's a scene where they make love, and... And so now there was adultery involved. I was condoning adultery. And then a few years after, uh, as if that was like, that couldn't get any worse, I played uh, a gay Muslim man on screen. <laughs> and uh, the outrage meter was just on the Richter scale. It was, uh, it was a thousand. And, um, and my dad said, look, let's get you out of the country because... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, it's going downhill for you, mate. It's, uh, um, and, uh, and I thought... Even I'm stressed out on your behalf. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because you know the, how the, the community would take mm. that. And, um, and it was really difficult. And he said, let's go on a holiday. And I thought, oh, great, Hawaii or Bahamas. And he's <laughs> sipping on a pineapple juice, sure. And he said, Iran. I'm like, right, yeah, yeah. Fun, great. Um, and we, we, so we went, and I'm so glad that I said yes. So we went away and spent beautiful time together. We had a two-week visa because that's all we get as Australian citizens. Um, and uh, after one week, we did some pilgrimage. I also went uh, to do some research for my book in terms of smelling the air and just feeling my childhood in the Iran-Iraq border. And we went to Mashhad, which is a couple of thousand kilometers away from Tehran, to do pilgrimage. In the, so at night, we had the uh, pilgrimage in, in, in the shrine. Uh, in the morning, we did some sightseeing, and we came back. And for the first time, uh, uh, he said, you go and have lunch on your own. And I went and, and downstairs, got the Wi-Fi on, started uh, doing some texts, uh, sent an email, uh, called my, uh, talked to my daughter, uh, and, uh, you know, she sent me a photo, said, send it to granddad, all that, and her birthday was coming up. And uh, I went back half an hour later into the room and he wasn't there. Like, as in, like, his body was there, but he, he wasn't there. And, um, and, and he, uh, 
yeah, I could, I could sense there was something wrong. I just walked in and I, and I just felt something's not right. And uh, it was, yeah, it was just really, it was intense because I, I, I saw, yeah, the, I, I thought, should I open the curtain? Maybe some light might help me see things better. And, and he was sleeping, but he just didn't wake up. Uh, I yelled at him, fucking wake up. He just didn't wake up. So, um, so then I had to get him. He wanted to be buried home, and he called Australia home. And, uh, uh, and, and he wanted to come back to Melbourne. And uh, so then there was all that to do. And I had one week uh, to, on my visa. And with one week in Iran, if, you, if your visa expires, there's an automatic three-day prison. And then they deport you back to country of origin, which would have meant my dad's body would have been in a, in a fridge somewhere. And just I wouldn't have access to it. And... Uh, and it was bureaucracy meets AK-47, so it was just a big thing during pilgrimage. I can't get a, I can't get any planes to Tehran because uh, they're all booked out because the city it has five million pilgrims go there at any year, and uh, and there was a charter plane. But the problem was, at the morgue, I had to leave my passport behind, and I begged the woman. I said to her, "Please, please, I need my passport to fly to Tehran." And, and I was interviewed by police to rule out homicide. Then I had to go to the courts. And then I had to go to the Department of Foreign Affairs. And then I had to get an, an exit papers and the birth death uh, certificate. All that stuff. And they're all, they all take time during a time uh, and with, with only less than a week left because of the two-day holiday. And so I didn't uh, – so she wouldn't uh, photocopy my passport. She just wouldn't do it. And so I left it and I just didn't know what else to do. And I went – I rushed to the airport. And the only other card that I had was one, my swim pass. And <laughs> I prayed to God that they don't read English. And thank God they didn't read English. And I just, uh, but the, sh uh, at the airport, uh, the lady looked at it and she's like, wow, they let you wear beanies and sunglasses in your, in your driver's license? That's, uh, your country's very relaxed. Um, so I boarded the the, the charter plane, thank God. But I found out later the woman that was really stuffing me around with the, with the passport, I said to her, why? And because I'm an Iraqi, I'm always an Arab uh, to the Persians and there's always been that um, racial tensions between the two countries. But what was actually, the, what was, uh, she was harboring was she said to me, because uh, I told her, if you, come to, if you were in Australia, no one would treat you like this. They'd understand. She said, is this the same Australia that's locked up my cousin in an island somewhere for 18 months? And I said, well, you can't take it out on me. But she did. So, um, so yeah, it just goes to show that bureaucracy is, uh, was really tough. But, um, yeah, that's it's part of the It's an extraordinary story. story. Yeah. You, you really need to read the book because you, we couldn't even explain it, and you know, what happened mm. in that process in those six days, in the mm. time that we've got in this whole session. Yeah. It's, it's quite extraordinary. You only hint at the anguish of, of losing him and you sort of tell the story with a bit of detached humour almost, able to sit a, a, what must have been in this incredible ordeal. But mm. um, through that you can see what an extraordinary bond you had with your father. It's, yeah. a, it's really about familial love. Yeah, that's right. And that's why I call the chapter where he passes away the day God died. Mm. Um, because yes, that's, yeah, oh, he, he was for me, yeah. 
Yasmin, there's, there's so much I wanted to ask both of you, and we are, we are running out of time. But at the moment, Islamophobia, it, it's rife um, since 9-11. I suppose that's, that's been the case continually. And it seems, I don't know if you've picked up on it, but <laughs> I'm sure you have, but there's increasingly a dialogue uh, that seeks to uh, justify racism as uh, freedom of speech. And we're hearing that from certain politicians. Pauline uh, Hanson, you can say <laughs> And her ilk. Uh, Got a lot you know, of Queensland. You <laughs> have you ever met her, being a Queenslander? I want to say unfortunately not, because, like, I'd, I'm, I'm interested to imagine what kind of conversation we would have. <laughs> I, t I Honestly, I think... I think Pauline's an interesting character. Sorry, I'm just... Do you have... Do you want to finish the question or I'll just Yeah, well, it, it, what I was going to ask is whether you feel that um, you need to call it out every time you hear racist, something racist or something even subliminally because often people don't realise the, the undercurrent of what they're saying. They're saying it with good intention, you know. It's like, oh, you're a, you're a Muslim. Haven't you done well for yourself? That kind of thing, you know. <laughs> they, don't, they don't necessarily see it. But do you feel that you need to call it out? Yeah, look, it's um, it's an interesting question, and we live in interesting times. Uh, I think I think the we've had you know twenty, thirty years of relative world peace, really uh, relative, and we've gotten complacent, and we think, and I think we tend to think that the kind of social cohesion and peace that we've enjoyed happens by accident mm -hmm. and that we can allow certain types of language and allow certain types of discussion to happen and not not kind of imagine that that's that that sets the foundation for how we treat each other in society and also if you look at in the past where really terrible genocide and really terrible things in humanity have happened it's started by language that dehumanizes another and it started by language that says they are different, they are bad, their ideology is different to ours. And so that's what frightens me and concerns me about the language that is being used and legitimized in Australia, but really around the, around the world. I mean, you look at... I've just come back from, from Europe and uh, the... Yes, people are frightened, but weirdly, more people die from being crushed by their furniture than by terrorist attacks. I had this really strange statistic the other day, which is essentially, it's an, a reminder of A, be careful of your furniture, but B, uh, I don't quite know how it happens, but B, the fear that is whipped up by sort of random acts of terror, as it were. But we also must remember that the way that it's couched is that if somebody who doesn't look like me or Osama does something, it's not terror. If something is perpetrated by someone who doesn't look like me and Osama, it's mental health or it's, you know, a lone wolf. It's a very different narrative. And there's this thing called, there's this concept called the pyramid of hate, right? And essentially it's just a, a sociological model that says at the bottom is acts of prejudice, right? Or, or, is, or is like prejudicial language and you know that kind of leads if you allow that that leads to acts of prejudice and that if you allow that it leads to discrimination and if you allow that that's where you get murder and genocide because all of a sudden the people you're killing aren't actually people they're representations of evil right and so I, I mean it's a little bit exhausting right it's a little bit exhausting for me to have most if not all of my identity in the public space be defined by the fact that I'm Muslim 
I don't get to be simply an engineer or simply a chick who likes cool turbans or simply a loud, laughing, you know, person in the crowd. I become a representation. And particularly as someone in the public space, because there are so few Muslims in the public space, because there are so few people of colour in the public space, all of a sudden one person has to represent all of you. And all of a sudden one representation. Like I work with guys, most of them, who've never spoken to a Muslim woman before. Right? And so, and, and in, in that space, I actually feel really lucky because I can say to them, hey lads, ask me whatever you want. No, I don't speak Muslim. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's, <laughs> I was not born with this like um, <laughs> it's not a country uh, but I allow that because I think a huge part of it is being willing and open to having a conversation now the other thing is though is that we also need to realise that there is a lot of pain and anger on all sides right and you know I, I sort of go back to the Muslim communities that I'm part of, and I hear people frustrated at the fact that they feel like they're not listened to, frustrated at the fact that no matter how many times the government consults with them, they still will have their houses raided for, no random, for, for a random reason, or they still will be stopped randomly by the cops because they're Lebanese and in a car with duf dufs or buffers. And how random yeah. can a random check be? <laughs> when it's consistently applied. <laughs> um, so it's like if you have years and years of being told you're a certain type of person, what's going to stop you from becoming that? Mm. Mm. What? And, and another thing, if I may add, is I was asked by a journalist, how, how do you feel like as a Muslim, in, you know, doing, doing what you're doing? And I said, look, I, I don't wake up thinking, wake up, uh, I wake up as a Muslim <laughs> and now I'm brushing my teeth as a Muslim <laughs> and I'm going to board the tram as a Muslim. <laughs> I'm going to touch on my Mikey as a Muslim and I don't do th I just do it as me. Like I just do it like everybody else, you know, mm. but and that's a private identity that I have with myself and my Lord. And 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 the thing is, I'm often just reminded that I am a Muslim when I'm talking on the phone in Arabic, which can sound quite aggressive to the foreign ear. Uh, go back where you came from, you know. I'm like, oh, I am a Muslim. Um, but, uh, but even now when I'm speaking in Arabic, because it sounds... Uh, I try to balance it out with, with just soft words. So I'd be like... Hi, Yasmin. We're going to talk in the Arabic language, and they don't understand strawberries. So they don't shampoo and conditioning. very calm. I mean, we said we're not terrorists. I want to ask... Oh, pardon. No, and it's interesting. That's such a good point. And, and in a different context... Um, Stan Grant yesterday talked about the white gaze, right? And it's a similar concept of we have to temper who we are to be acceptable. Now, if I rocked up today dressed slightly differently, dressed in a way that was a little bit more traditional, a little bit less hipster, the reaction that I would get from the people around me is very different. And I wrap this scarf in a different way and I get treated on the bus differently and I get treated by people behind counters differently, right? And I like wearing my scarf this way but I also feel sometimes like I'm cheating because I get away with being treated like a normal human being and the rest of the Muslim women don't. 
Right. And I feel sometimes it's a two-way street for us as Muslims as well. So once, I'll tell you the story, I was on a tram and I was in my, the long dishdashe, which is the Arab, white Arab dress, the one-piece dress, um, which if you're getting away from the law handicaps, you start shuffling like a penguin. <laughs> um, but, but I was sitting and uh, there was a, a white guy in front of me and he was really looking me up and down and starting me and I thought, oh my God, here we go, post 9-11. And, and all I needed to do was wear my name tag, Osama. And, uh, <laughs> and I've got the backpack next to me. And I thought... Bags I thought, without people don't make sense. And I'm like, yeah. And I'm like, oh my God, here... And then, I'm look, and then I kind of looked at him back, like, to defy. And then he went, um, is that an Iraqi dishdasha or a Kuwaiti one? Because I was in a... And then I realised all these assumptions was in my own head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very he true. actually was interested in starting a conversation, which is exactly what Yasmin's talking about, mm. having a dialogue. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm now being the one who's uh, being... Yeah. So. I want to close this session by asking each of you, because both of you, you know, your faith has always been there, but it's deepened as you've explored it further. And I want to ask each of you what it means to you to be a Muslim. Yasmin, do you want to start? Mm. See, I, I, I pretended I'm drinking water. <laughs> <laughs> so that was very well that made. That was a good handball. Oh, Back to the footy discussion. <laughs> Oh, what would you like us to know about Islam? Because, you know, we are largely not Muslim here. You could mm. be the only two Muslim people in the room. Maybe, maybe, not be a couple of others, but, you know, what would you like us no, to know about Islam? you're all going to be Muslim Islam? at the end of this room. I said that earlier. <laughs> I'm going to hold you accountable. <laughs> Do you want to go first, Islam? What it means to be a Muslim? Um, in, in mo it would it, it, change uh, because if, uh, like, next week I'm going to Iran... For a, for a wedding and to to collect some comedy material, um, <laughs> and so uh, I, I think in so in Iran I wouldn't even think about being a Muslim because everyone's Muslim. I remember in my last trip I went to a um, a butcher and I said to him, "Is your meat halal?" And he just went, "Are you having a lend of me?" And he, just, <laughs> he chased me with his big kitchen knife like he thought I was just having him on. And I remembered, oh, my God, this is what I do in Australia because, of course, this is the Islamic Republic of Iran. Of course, that means halal. Uh, so I kind of don't think about it that way at all. And uh, my Islam, like when Ramadan comes, it's – I fast, but I hang around with all my mates who don't, and I don't, I don't think about it. Um, it. It's only meant that, you know, like the African-Americans uh, in uh, the States – there's a lot of prejudice and, and racial tensions. Uh, of course I feel that. I wouldn't lie about that. Um, and, and there's also, I, I probably feel no less prejudice than, say, the Indigenous people do in Australia as well with, and our treatments towards them. So uh, it's, uh, I, I sometimes feel as the other, but most of the times it's just one collective because I, my gauge is this. I don't, if I was to gauge how racist Australia is by the Daily Telegraph, then we're a fucking racist country. <laughs> but if I was to judge it by the, my teammates in the cricket club, the people that I've got, uh, that, that are my friends, 
the people out here, the people that I meet on a day-to-day basis. Uh, my friend at the barbecue, when I say to him, can you not chuck a pork sausage on that? And he goes, oh, yeah, of course, mate. Like, that's, that's Australia. For me, that is Australia. Uh, and uh, everything else is just murder rubbish. Yes, sir? For me, what it means to be Muslim has changed over the years. Um, And I talked to you about this earlier. I think as a child, it was a lot about rules. And I think for a lot of children, religion is about following the right rules, praying at the right time, doing the right thing, um, wearing the right clothes. And, but, but it was as inherent an identity to me as my gender. You know, like being a Muslim was the same as being a woman. I couldn't imagine being anything else. And it kind of shaped the way I did everything and the way I thought about everything. So, that was it, that's just how it was. But I think growing up, having learning to justify it to a lot of people, meaning allowed me to then interrogate what it meant to me and, and why I continue to believe in it, why I choose to believe in it. And ultimately, I think I, I spend a lot, of, a lot of my time in service because I think that's really important. And a lot of people ask me why I do that. And for me, it is because I believe and even though I may, you know, however I may follow the rules or not follow the rules, it, it, sort of the religion comes down to this. Um, I believe that one day I'll be asked that you were blessed with certain opportunities. And remember, I was born in Sudan. I was born in one of the poorest countries in the world with very, very little opportunity and access to anything, really. And I, and I get to be here. So why me? I just got back from Uganda. Um, I did a, a weird trip. And... And I heard about the kind of stories that young children in, in the Kony time went through. And I was just across the border. And Sudan went through the longest civil war in Africa. And I got through that. I somehow was born to the right parents that allowed me to come here. So why did I get so lucky? And for me, faith answers some of that questions. For me, faith is saying, you got these opportunities. What did you do with them? How did you make the most of them? It is not a gift, but it is a responsibility. For me, faith is around understanding that everything I do must be in service. Um, and and that, shapes, that shapes the sort of daily decisions I make. It's not necessarily about, you know, are my pants tight enough? Or, oh, sorry, are my pants loose enough? Sorry, Mum. <laughs> something she still gets very stressed about. Um, and... And, and more about what is the essence. So for me, faith has turned from being about rules to about essence. And how do I perform my faith um, in the best way possible? And how do I take the principles of trying to do the best for community and trying to shape community in the best way possible and apply that to everything, apply that to financial systems, to the way we look at aging, to the way that we have, you know, look at health. How do we apply those concepts and that moral sort of value set to everything that we do. And that is what faith is to me. And, and it's funny that the title is Good Muslim Kids because I think a lot of the time I ask myself if I am a good enough Muslim. And I don't ever think that I will, that I think I will be able to say yes, but striving to constantly be that good Muslim, inshallah, is what will enable me to have the best impact. Well, it's been a great pleasure this morning. Thank our guests. Osama Sami and Yasmin Abdel Majid. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. This session was recorded live as part of Byron Writers Festival 2016.
You can find other recorded talks and discussions on our website, byronwritersfestival.com.